1: We see the news that teen vaping's on the rise, but teens see something else. Internet videos that talk up fun flavors and downplay the dangers of nicotine. How can parents talk so kids will listen? Use facts. One, nicotine can rewire teens' brains. Two, it can make kids more anxious. Three, changes to the brain can be permanent. So even when it tastes like candy, nicotine is brain poison. Go to flavorshookkids.org for more What's going on, Ann Camp? This is the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Michael Ware. You know that we are trying to raise civic literacy among Christians and others and talk about politics from a biblical worldview. Thank you for joining us. Michael, how's everything going? Going good, going good. Good to be on the, on the line with you. Yeah, likewise. We got a lot to talk about as usual, including some of your work that I thought was really good. You wrote an article uh, late last week Uh, that was in the Atlantic that was entitled. You'll do it right to grow the best garden you can. Lowe's does it right, too, with savings on miracle Grow potting mix with fertilizer to help you get growing and grow plants twice as big versus unfed plants.
0: Pick up a 50-quart bag now for just $10. Plus, get Bonnie 2.32-quart vegetables and herbs, three for $10. For a garden that's worthy of showing off, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 6 5 while supplies last US only excludes Alaska and Hawaii.
1: The abortion debate needs moral lament. You started off, Michael, by saying that we've entered a post abortion phase of the abortion debate. Can you explain to the audience what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, this, uh, this, uh, we've been debating abortion in this country, uh, in our politics for uh, the last 50 years plus. And, you know, in some ways, you know, we've reached a stage of the debate where what used to sort of jolt us, what used to shock us is no longer shocking. And so you see Republicans trying to box Democrats in in some way, at some level. And uh, what that looked like uh, over the last couple of weeks, and even, you know, for th- this year has been around what happens to Babies after they're born, um, after they've survived, you know, a failed abortion attempt, and so. Uh, you know this all obviously goes back to abortion, but what was interesting about Ben sass 's bill, Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska, is that his bill didn 't touch abortion rights at all. It had nothing to do directly with abortion rights um, and, and yet there was there was still a concern among Democrats that the the sort of implications of the bill would affect uh, how how the courts might look at abortion and and really how the nation might look at abortion.
1: Yeah, it's almost as if, look, we have the sacred cow and anything you do to come close to touching it, we're going to disallow, right? Which, which I think it come up to some pretty absurd policy, but that seems to be where we're he- headed. Um, now you, you talked about failed abortions do happen. This isn't the first, uh, policy conversation to talk about failed abortions. You went through this in the article. Can you give us some of that history?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, So, you know, the CDC's numbers from 2003 to uh, 2014 showed about 143 pregnancies that they had data for. And it's important to know only six states are required to report some of this data uh, the CDC acknowledged that the 143 number is sort of the floor. They said they could be uh, significantly underestimating, but 143 pregnancies from 2003 to 2014, uh, the babies were born alive after an an induced abortion attempt. We know from the grand jury in Pennsylvania that Dr. Kermit Gosnell, uh, who delivered uh, babies and then killed them, I, I don't, I don't know. Other language to use, uh, other than that. Uh, and, and so there have been these cases. I don't think a lot of people think there's, you know, some sort of a sweeping epidemic of this happening. This is not standard medical protocol, but that's why we need a law explicitly explicitly uh, banning it. We, we, we have laws that ban things that don't happen. All the time, pretty often, because they're just they're so bad, and they need to be explicitly lifted out uh, in in criminal code. And so that's that's what the SAS bill, from my reading, attempted to do. It, it wanted to put in law that if a baby somehow miraculously survives abortion, that it needs to be provided the same medical care as a similarly situated baby who just
1: wasn't born as the result or after a a failed abortion attempt. Yeah. And the fact that a baby could possibly survive an abortion, I think, speaks uh, quite a bit itself. That's right. We, We talk so much about this abortion debate, but what I got from your article was, in a lot of ways, we're avoiding or evading the actual debate. And also that the people that are speaking for us, whether they be commentators or politicians, aren't really talking about it in the same way as those who are closest to the issue. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. It's um, the
0: language that's used around this debate ref- reflects people who view view this issue as an opportunity to self-aggrandize and to polarize and to, you know, really help themselves. I, I tell, I wrote in the piece that Trump You know, at the joint session of Congress for the Save the Union is talking about, uh, you know, executing babies. He tweeted that uh, Democrats, you know, uh, seem to not mind if babies are executed. Uh, Mike Huckabee talked about a a fresh uh, murdering freshly born babies. Uh, You know, I, I think it's now almost, you know, a trope, the sort of tactics and and the sort of visceral, some would say, you know, offensive images and and whatnot used by some pro-life activists. Uh, And then obviously on the left, you have folks who anytime anything is brought up about this set of issues, instead of dealing with the moral content of them, instead of taking on good faith that, as I wrote in the piece, this same instinct for protecting human dignity that led Senator Tim Scott, the Republican from South from South Carolina, to co-sponsor the anti-lynching bill that just passed uh, the Senate. It's that same impulse that leads him to support something like the SAS bill. <laughs> uh, uh, but instead of at least hearing folks out, it's no, Republicans are trying to drag women back to the 18th century, or uh, they, they don't care about the people's rights. And instead, what we need to deal with is, Like you just brought up, Justin, the reason why this bill was so difficult for folks is not because it explicitly restricted abortion rights, but because it pointed out that very fact that you pointed out, which is that if we had to acknowledge that what a failed abortion means is that a baby is born... uh, then what does that say about what a successful abortion is? <laughs> if a failed abortion means the, means the baby survives and in some cases goes on to contribute to our communities, contribute to our country, contribute to their their families, then what is a successful abortion? And I think the broad majority of the American public gets that. That's why the broad majority of the American public aren't on either ends of the extremes of this debate, but in this middle where we recognize that uh, there is moral content to both sides of the argument, that there are rights uh, on both sides of this debate that are are in fundamental tension. It's why abortion is such a difficult issue. Uh, But our political debate, Justin, doesn't reflect that there's any tension at all. It reflects folks who are trying to demonize
1: those who disagree with them. Yeah. And I think the abortion debate in a lot of ways, and this may sound odd, but it's a perfect example of how Trump in some ways was a gift to the far left. Right. Because he gave them a foil To push the party to extremes that they otherwise would would struggle to achieve uh, if he wasn't this perfect enemy. Trump kind of turbocharged the Democratic parties or at least the the far left kind of race all the way to the extreme left. Um, And it seems that many people, at least the ones that we hear from, are embracing extreme positions to spite the other side. Right. So once you demonize the other party. It seems like it's not enough to simply oppose them. You have to take the polar opposite position that they've taken. So if you want abortion to be illegal, then I want to remove all restrictions. If you want to keep immigrants out, then I want to completely open the borders, whether it makes sense or not. And I know a lot of people who I suspect would have never turned a blind eye or supported late term abortion if they had separated the issue from how much they dislike Republicans. And so issues like abortion, we have to understand, in my opinion, have to be critiqued and weighed on their own merit, not relative to what uh, you think about the other party. Because that just skews the whole issue. Um, And I think it's a terribly small minded way to choose a position on such an important issue. Just two points there, which is I, I, I make the point in the essay
0: that if people really think that this SAS bill was some kind of backdoor into questioning Roe v Wade then you, you know we could have that debate i would urge people to to read the language of the bill for themselves instead of you know reading these pieces about it but even reading the language of the bill if you have suspicions because of the history of the republican party or whatever that's fine but the fact that democrats couldn't even say you know this bill does so much more or this bill is a manipulative bill but we the democratic party and and uh, still stands against infanticide <laughs> you know the democratic party uh, respects the stated intent of this bill and if republicans want to put forward something that actually does that we'll be right behind them there wasn't even any of that rhetorical acknowledgement that to the extent that this is a real issue, Democrats are against it. And it's for exactly the reason that you just said, Justin, which is not wanting to give this the other side any sort of sense of acknowledgement, any sort of sense that they might have a point. Uh, and that's you know terribly, terribly destructive. But the second point I'll make is your, your point about Trump opening up opportunity for the far left is really key. I mean, f- folks should remember... You know, after the Clinton impeachment scandal, George W. Bush ran for president, basically running to restore America's sort of self-respect and moral credibility. You know, there was a sense that uh, for all of his flaws, George W. Bush was never going to embarrass America in the same way that Clinton did. and I know that sounds very passé and almost ridiculous in light of everything that happened, but in 2000, that, that was a real thing. It's why Al Gore went a campaign with Bill Clinton. It's also why the Democratic platform in 2000 is probably the most pro-life Democratic platform since Roe v. Wade in, in that it specifically called for pro-life Americans to be welcomed into All levels of party leadership in the Democratic Party, which is just a big deal at the time. It would be, you know, it would be unheard of now. But that goes to your point that when the Republicans have someone who can sort of authentically claim the pro life position, then it does put Democrats in a bit of a corner. But when you have someone who's just saying the lines, but can't possibly be taken seriously for so many reasons, including the fact that he was pro-choice for most of his time in public life, including the fact that his his personal life doesn't seem to be altogether, then you're absolutely right. It, it opens up the far left to say, look, why are we even taking these people seriously when this is the guy who's articulating uh, the, the justification for their pro-life position?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. And it's also the narrative that if they're going to be that far extreme, we have to answer it with our own extreme or it just changes the tone of the conversation or the tone of the conversation to the point where it's like it's about the extremes and we need to get if we're going to get what we need by any means necessary. We have to go as far as possible. And it's unfortunate because it's 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 kind of taken down some of the standards on both sides, because the truth of the matter is your opposition could be very wrong on an issue but it doesn't mean that the opposite position is the correct position to take, right? And and you see interest groups and parties kind of perpetuate and manipulate this kind of thinking all the time. It is brain dead politics. And again, leads to absurd outcomes. Your rage cannot guide your policy. And uh, we just have to understand, look, look at these. We have to look at these issues, which are life and death issues with clear eyes, with principles that go beyond what's going on in both parties. And if we don't, we end up in a really bad place. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that's why I ended the essay the way the way that I did. I think there's a lot of using this issue or, or you know, and some folks are are even doing it in good faith that the the stakes are high and they're outraged, but the point of my essay is not that there's nothing here to be outraged about, but what I would like to see and what I think the moment calls for is also a sense of moral lament. The reason why our debate on this issue is so outrageous is because it lacks a sense of respect for the human dignity and the stakes involved, which is not just something to be outraged about, but something to something to lament, something to look at and say, there but for the grace of God go I, something to look at and say that this now, the way this debate plays out actually tells us something deeper about our culture and about our souls. And, and so as folks are out there engaging on this issue, uh, yes, have conviction, have confidence, but never forget the human stakes involved. Never forget the fact that this is a tragedy all around and our language should be weighted, should be burdened by by that brokenness Uh, This issue should not be used to simply prop ourselves up as sort of the moral vanguards as the unimpeachable sort of force in our politics. Uh, I'm not unimpeachable n- neither is really anyone else. Uh, and this issue doesn't, d- doesn't make you unimpeachable regardless of where you stand on it.
1: Yeah, that's good. Uh, it, this is one of those situations where we should be looking for higher principles as we kind of critique the issue. But it seems like we're, we're looking to lesser partisan interests. And that's unfortunate. We're going to take a quick break and then we will be back talking about CPAC. And we are back. Uh, we want to have a conversation now about CPAC. CPAC is the Conservative Political Action Conference. It's an annual conference, a four-day conference. Uh, this year was in National Harbor, Maryland, and it's hosted by the American Conservative Union. It begins with an activist boot camp, and I think it was started in maybe 1974 uh, by Ronald Reagan, who gave that, that not by him, but he gave the first keynote at uh, the first CPAC. So it's been around for a while Folks who are in conservative circles know all about CPAC. It's been widely criticized. I know this year Trump gave the keynote, and it was a (laughs) (laughs) two-hour keynote speech. I don't know if it was originally written to be that long, or he was just kind of (laughs) going... Going with the flow uh, of it. But uh, apparently, you know, he's already failed several several fact checks and it's just been a a widely criticized event. You know, some people praised it, but definitely a lot of folks saying it could have been done better, even on the right. What are your thoughts about CPAC and and how it went this year?
0: Yeah, well, you know, first, I, I, you know, just thinking of presidents generally, uh, by the time they get to this stage of their presidency uh, and especially you, you know, as the presidency wears on, you're just so glad to be with audiences that love you. <laughs> that, that you, I think you do start to see these speeches get a little bit longer and, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the president, whoever it is, kind of milking it a bit more because they're, you know, getting so used to getting, you know, banged up everywhere else. So, you know, I think Trump was kind of soaking, uh, it in, you know, my, my main thought, I think of CPAC like I think uh you know to a similar degree Heritage. There there are good people at Heritage, Good people Heritage Foundation, which is a, a DC conservative think tank. Although part of the point is there was a time when Heritage and CPAC were big idea generators. They were where the serious people in the conservative movement went. Now it's Not that case. There are very good people at Heritage uh, who do good work there. I know some people who were at CPAC and uh, it's almost like, you know, CPAC is where you need to be if you're a conservative. Um, The problem is that folks who have been given platforms at CPAC, some of the organizations who have been allowed to sponsor it are are not serious organizations or they're organizations that are seriously wrong. Uh, So CPAC has been a, a place that's hosted white nationalists. It's been a place where folks who are white nationalists, folks who are xenophobic, feel comfortable. Uh, it's also become, as Jane Coaston pointed out at Vox, that it's now very celebrity centric. And so again, CPAC used to be this place where policy wonks would wait the entire year to like uh, unveil their new idea at CPAC, and now you have you know Sebastian Gorka and. Uh, Charlie Kirk and Diamond and Silk, you know, various personalities. Uh, It's become almost like a (laughs) Comic-Con kind of thing, which is indicative of where our politics is right now, that that that's what folks want to see. But that's my, you know, I think CPAC, uh, there's been a lot of sort of social media conversation about Reporters sort of mocking CPAC and some folks being unhappy about which reporters were sent uh, and how it was covered. But look, if if that's what you put on stage, if that's if that's what you make available at the event, that's what people are going to gravitate towards. They're going to gravitate towards Donald Trump hugging an American flag like some kind of fool, and that's going to be the focus, no matter what else he said in his two-hour speech. I, I think it's a real problem for the conservative movement. Long term, that this is sort of the center of gravity there, and not some place like AEI or the Manhattan Institute.
1: Yeah, I think you get much. You would get much more, in my opinion. Uh, you would get much more out of CPAC if you brought in like reform conservatives, right? Kind of the reformer cons and then had them kind of meet up with grassroots people, which is what the reformer cons were missing. In my, in my opinion, you would get much more out of something like this, but it does seem to have become the playground of the provocative, right? The people who, who get laughs, who get cheers, who, who do well on social media. Now, apparently an example of this is Michelle uh, Malkin referenced the ghost of Senator John McCain. Disgusting. Yeah, as she was taking shots at Republicans over their failure to take action on immigration. As we know, uh, Senator McCain just recently died last year. And so to take that shot is just unfortunate, um, indecent and 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 really should have never happened. Something else that stuck out to me, though, Michael, in, in uh, kind of reading about CPAC, because I didn't watch it live, was the role that some Democrats played in the conversation. Right. So you had this obsession with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez which to me is just getting overboard. She's become a symbol for everything that the right hates and or fears about progressive millennials. And they go to uh, no small extent to to really uh, try to drag her as often as possible. And what I don't think they realize is that they're actually making her more popular among her base. Uh, That She actually gains more influence when they focus on so much of their criticism on her. And they're likely to make her a senator or something even more uh, if they continue to do that. And so I I think that is counterproductive. But I can't tell that a lot of folks on the right get that. The other other thing that I saw was Van Jones um, made some interesting comments. He was there and he said that that the conservative movement in this country, unfortunately, from his point of view, uh, is now the leader on the issue of prison reform. He said they are shrinking. The prison population, he pointed to uh, Mississippi Governor uh, Phil Bryant, former Georgia Governor uh, Nathan Deal for former Texas Governor Rick Perry. And what you saw. And so after he said this, the, the left just went crazy on him. Uh, he was called a sellout and all this other stuff because Jones committed the cardinal sin of giving the other party credit, even when credit is due. We should all know that notwithstanding the facts, you can never give the other party credit. And that's just unfortunate. I'm glad uh, that Van said what what he said, because Republicans have taken the lead on that and they need to be recognized for it. If you truly want the other side to do the right thing, you should acknowledge when they do the right thing. But when you just want to win and you just want to demonize, then acknowledging and encouraging them to do the right thing becomes bad. And that's, again, why our politics are where we find them at today.
0: You're right, Justin. I mean, Van got crushed, but when you're actually an activist on an issue, when you're actually committed on an issue, it then becomes a question of integrity for you if you're going to point out that other people working on the issue are doing that work. And the reason why some people are okay with not crediting people like Nathan Deal for the work he did on criminal justice reform is that criminal justice reform for, for some folks is just like one item on the list of whatever your political tribe is supposed to say that they're for. (laughs) But for Van, he's been, I mean, I I worked with Van. He's cared about this issue long before it was popular long before it was sort of in the headlines in the way that it is now he has uh, relationships and position of authority that he, he needs to, to uphold. He needs to be able to call things the way uh, he sees it. And, you know, I, I think that's what he did. And I also think people, he was at CPAC, you know, like, of course, you're going to encourage activists at CPAC to embrace the conservative role that was played in moving forward your policy agenda. Uh, like, like, this was a strategic
1: move by Van, not uh, not, not not just, you know, uh, sucking up to the crowd. Exactly. Um, And, you know, he took the blowback, but I'm, I'm glad he said it. We should be in the habit of encouraging people in the, uh, the opposite party to do the right thing and giving them a heads up. And I said this in the Civic Update this week. When you are able to compliment and acknowledge when the other side side has done something right, you then have more standing and more credibility to critique them. Because now you're doing it from a more objective point of view. If you're always, regardless of what happens, just going to criticize, then no one outside of your group of friends is going to listen to you. But when you show that you have some objectivity, when you show that you want the good, you want good policy rather than just your side winning, you end up in a space where you, you actually may have more influence and, and, and can help get some things done. So that's good. Uh, We're going to take one more break and then we will be back talking about what a former Clinton campaign advisor thinks the Democratic Party needs to do to win in 2020. And we are back in camp. Uh, as I said before, we wanted to talk about some comments made by a former Clinton campaign advisor about what the Democrats need to do in 2020 in order to win. We're talking about Jennifer Palmieri, uh, and she had some interesting comments in an interview with our friend John Ward uh, with uh, Yahoo News, and this is how she started, Michael. She says that if Democrats don't put forward a unifying candidate in 2020 and try to win back at least some... Uh, some voters who supported uh, President Trump in 2016, they will lose. And so that was her perspective. And and we've talked about this a little bit, too, Michael. Um, I'm surprised I expected this to be a race to the left, but I'm still somewhat surprised at how far left folks are going. I mean, you got people talking about legalizing prostitution, all kinds of things that I don't see as necessary or helpful when you come when it comes to a wider audience than just. The far left base. What are your thoughts on this conversation and, and what Paul Mary, uh, Paul Mary had to say in this Yahoo News article?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting. Like you said, a lot of folks have been saying stuff like this, but part of the party has been dismissing them as just sort of Clinton haters and and folks who are just trying to bash Hillary Clinton. Jennifer Palmieri still works with uh, Hillary Clinton. They're very close. She was loyal to Clinton on the campaign. If you watch the, you know, I think it was a, a Showtime or maybe it was HBO documentary on the campaign, Palmieri features very significantly in that. And so she isn't saying any of this about 2016. She's saying it about 2020. And I think she's exactly right. The thing that really stuck out to me, though, Justin, about the interview is John Ward pulls out the section in her book where it's, it's right after Trump's win. And Palmieri writes that disruption had come to my industry, which is politics, the way it had to so many others. Nothing made sense to me anymore she comes to the realization that this is how many of the people who voted for Trump felt. She she writes, this is how the man who worked in coal his whole life and now can't find a decent job feels. This is how the cab driver who has been run out of business by Uber feels. Uh, this is how everyone feels whose life plan was blown up by some unexpected and confounding force. I just find that to be really moving, really humanizing. I, I hope that Jennifer will carry that into whether she's working directly on the 2020 campaign or just sort of advising folks. And I hope other advisors will pick it up. Like I'm not sure Jennifer's policy views changed at all as a part of that experience. In some cases, they may not need to. It's it's that empathy side. It's the understanding that that folks could be good hearted or really be going through some bad times and not agree with your policy prescriptions. And even that will go a long way. So I I thought it was a really good piece.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it could go a a long way. And one of the things that one of the things that I see that gets to me a lot and and I take issue with is the idea that everyone who disagrees with you uh, politically is either stupid or just evil. Right. So if they disagree with me. They don't know. You always hear this all the time. They don't know their own interest and all that stuff. And surely there's people on both sides who may not be working in their own best interest. But to just take a whole demographics of people and say they don't know what their interest is, I think, is a, is a bit presumptuous. Um, number one, their interest, they may see their interests very different than you. You do. Uh, number two, if you are around people, I've never met a demographic of people that I actually spent time with that I didn't think had some extremely brilliant people within that that I could learn from. And that's kind of what we miss. You know, she she went in, as you said, to talk about, you know, the cab driver who lost his job, the co-worker who no who no longer um, can work in that industry. And these are people, number one, that are hurting. But number two, that may be looking at things from a different worldview than you. And so I think we need to do our best to find empathy where we've just been replacing it by dismissing people who disagree with us. That puts us in a a very bad position. And I hope we start to kind of change how we're looking at it again. These, you know, 2020 candidates on the Democratic side of the conversation. Have really been reaching to get to the base. And we know why this happens, right, Michael? We know that when it comes to primaries, a lot of the folks, sometimes a lot of the folks in your base who are gonna be more active. And in a real way, they've been reaching for these folks, which may be a mistake. Uh, if we're gonna take what Paul is saying, it's say, a, yeah, it may work, it may seem like it's working in the primary, but at the end of the day, some of this stuff may come back to haunt you. I can't think of a far left policy that's been brought to the public square seriously that one of the candidates, one of these candidates hasn't jumped on almost immediately. And I don't know how well thought out that is. I guess the idea is that if you get out in front, you can stay out in front. And the way to get out in front is to jump on some of these issues. But, Michael, I see this as something that could really come back to haunt some of these folks as, as time goes on.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's going to be uh, interesting now to see. If some of these, uh, if we get some moderates jumping into the rates, it looks like Governor Hickenlooper of Colorado is really, really looking at it. Joe Biden, uh, there was a report that he has New Hampshire staff ready to go. It's going to be interesting to see how the dynamics of the race change. But I I agree with you, Justin. There's definitely room room in the middle to run in this primary, and, and hopefully someone will step up.
1: And I think we can only blame the candidates so much because in a way they're responding to us. And so if they're going so far to the left, maybe we need more people like Palmieri standing up and saying, hey, we may be more conservative or moderate, but you need to hear us out. Uh, and so some of that has to come on us. Some of that has to come on the church who we're not really standing up and saying what we want to hear and what we want to see necessarily, because, again, when you talk about legalizing prostitution, legalizing marijuana, I know that uh, the majority of the people that I know are not in support of things like that. But if people are so easily kind of uh, promoting that within the the primary, maybe they just are not hearing us. And part of that, we have to take the blame for So. Uh, we we will see how this goes. As you guys know, we're going to have a lot of 2020 uh, commentary coming up for the next uh, almost two years. And so just stay tuned. The next thing I wanted to touch on, though, was uh, Michael Cohen and his testimony that was given before Congress. As many of you know, Michael Cohen is the is Trump's former attorney. Uh, some would say that he's Trump's former fixer. And again, he testified before Congress last week. And it was not short on provocative moments. And so he came out and said that Trump uh, was a racist. He kind of confirmed many of the things used to go against Trump's character. I don't know that much of it was unexpected. Uh, But what stood out to me wasn't necessarily the negative things that he said about Trump, because they were almost expected. Um, But Cohen was asked if he knew anything about collusion with Russia. And Cohen said that he did not um that could be problematic to some of the narratives going on on the left to me at the end of the day this you know it's it's good that it happened they need a chance to kind of question him because he knows a lot but to me it's all going to come down to the Mueller report uh what does that report have in it Mueller should have all the information that we heard from cohen and more and if there's a case to be made it should come from that report what are your thoughts about cohen's testimony and just the implications of it all yeah
0: you know cohen is Someone who's a little difficult to take seriously, although, you know, I think the way his testimony went probably improved his standing. You know, he was willing to say when he didn't know things. He was willing he didn't he was willing to sort of roll things back when the question called for it. So I think he improved his standing in that way. The the main thing for me, Justin, is it's indicative of the kinds of people that President Trump surrounds himself with. Cohen was Uh, had this sort of personal testimony and and it was, it was interesting to hear him repeatedly sort of confess his sins to this, this, this panel. But for me, it was just, you know, this is, this is the man that we elected, you know, this is the kind of parade of this kind of carnival that we, we invited in. So I think that that's significant. I know it's become a part of like the, it's an assumed fact now, but we did get further uh, indication that hush payments were delivered and that Cohen was crucial to that. And so, you know, like th- that's a significant thing that we continue to get vindication on that should not be able to be forgotten when it comes to this president. Cohen had some very interesting things to say about how Trump built his wealth by uh, consistently undervaluing uh, the worth of his property and therefore evading. Millions and millions and millions of dollars in paying taxes. I don't think it was the the game changing. You'll remember where you were type of moment, but it, it was indicative that this is a this is a president who is who views himself above the law, who views himself as someone who who should be able to get away with uh, with what he wants to get away with.
1: Yeah, and you hit on it. You know, as an attorney, listening to this testimony, understanding the attorney client relationship. It does hit on Cohen's credibility because at the end of the day, you are Trump's attorney. And if Trump is asking you to do things that are illegal, it's on you. You have a fiduciary duty to tell him no or to say I'm no longer going to represent you when you continue to represent him for 10 years or so. It's hard for people to say you're credible. So if I'm the attorney, if this if this was in the court of law and I'm the attorney, I'm going to ask him, hey, so in year one, did he do anything illegal? Yeah, he did this. OK, you just decided not to leave. Correct. In year two, in year five and year seven, you did the same thing. And over and over, you were doing these things that now you're saying are illegal, but you didn't advise your client not to do it. You actually just went along with it. And he kind of painted this picture, whereas, you know, Trump was very influential and Trump this. But sure that you were the attorney. You're you're the person who's supposed to be giving him counsel. And so it it makes it very hard to, to, again, to listen to him as if he has credibility when he's taking that stance, when he was a very able attorney. And so he very well understands his ethical and professional duties and obligations. And so to just kind of dismiss that and say, well, he I was kind of just following my hand behind him and he made me do other stuff. I hear you, but it's just hard to believe. And so that's not to say what he said was not credible or that or that uh, President Trump is more credible coming from a legal standpoint, though. That's that's just tough to to swallow. And then you do understand that, you know, uh, this is all connected to, to you know, his sentence and things that he's doing and deals that he's trying to and he, deals that he's made or is trying to make. And so, yeah, it, be, it becomes tough. And again, I go back to the, the conversation that is really about the Mueller report. You know, Mueller had a chance to get all of this down. What does he have? What doesn't he have? We really need to be paying attention to these uh, the collusion conversation, because if that's not there, it's problematic that we spent this much time on. it. I'm not saying that it's not. But the fact that Cohen said he knew nothing about it uh, makes it makes it very tough. And so I'm interested to see what's in that. I hope it's a serious report where we learn something. But until then, we're going to be just kind of grasping at straws and speculating. So we'll have to see. Right.
0: And, and right, Justin, it does look like that this could be coming out in the next few weeks here. So, you know, it, it's been a long, it's, it feels like a long, long wait. And who knows what other uh, postponements we'll see. But from sort of the chatter in, in D.C., it, it seems like the, the report will almost be here. And then we'll see whether, uh, you know, a, a source as, you know, respected as Mueller is able to break through. The partisan chatter, which I think will be a real test, uh, no matter how the report ends up. What like will will all of the players involved treat Mueller's report as the baseline, or if the report doesn't say what they want it to say? Will, will they just continue uh, doing, doing
1: what they do? I, I think we can guess on how <laughs> on how that's going to go. Uh, but we, we will wait to see. As you guys know, when that comes out, we will be coming to you with uh, the commentary and just letting you know what's in it. So you can look forward to that. That does it for today. I would uh, like to thank all everybody in the Ann Camp for listening. Thank you for your support; it means uh, the world to us. If you have a chance and you're listening to this on iTunes, uh, make sure that you comment. Make sure that you rate us uh, so people know, and then spread it to your friends. Share it on social media. If you like what we're doing, please just show a little love. We appreciate you, Michael. Take us out.
0: Really good talking with you. Thanks, fam. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We'll see you next week. Came out of
1: Nazareth. Come to the Home Depot this month, and you'll learn a thing or two—actually, three—with three three free do-it-yourself workshops. Learn how to grow an edible raised garden bed, how to build a catch-all nightstand organizer, even how to install wall tile. See, it's never too late to learn something new. Register today at HomeDepot.com/workshops for a free do-it-yourself
0: workshop near you only at the home depot more saving more doing napa know how. at napa auto care centers you'll get a 75 dollar prepaid visa card when you spend 250 bucks on napa brake parts which is cause to celebrate because normally the sound of screeching brakes means your bank account's about to take a hit but getting 75 bucks back makes that hit not so bad Quality parts installed by the pros. That's Napa Know How. Napa Know How. At participating Napa Auto Care Centers, exclusions apply. Offer N63019. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit EnneagramandMarriage.com to find your chemistry together again or for the very first time.